Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. What follows is an edited version of a fireside chat with members of the Integral Life Practice Community. Uh, the idea here is to have more of a conversation with you. If you have any questions or comments, just put them in the chat and I will address them as best I can. And in the meantime, I'll share a little bit about what has caught my attention since the last time we met. And uh, and then after that, we'll do an opportunity for you guys to talk in small groups for about 12, 15 minutes. And then we'll come back and we'll finish up in about an hour and 15 minutes or so. So we'll see how it goes. All right, I wanna start uh, by sharing a poem. People send me stuff all the time, and this poem really caught my attention, and I think it really uh, is, uh, you know, uh, uh, actually beautiful. And it's inspired by Ken Wilber's Theory of Development. It was sent to me by a longtime listener and friend, Casey Capshaw. And here it is. It's just three stanzas. It starts... Ascending the steps, we embark on a journey through levels so stark. Wilbur's wisdom reveals that development heals as we climb a new consciousness sparks. In the spiral of growth, we will find our perceptions and thoughts intertwined. With each stage that we pass, a more intricate grasp of the depths of the human mind. From the shadows to radiant light, through these stages our souls take flight in a dance of ascent where our hearts find content in the wisdom that guides us to unite. Isn't that beautiful? Oh. So I looked at the you know, who wrote it. And the author of this poem is ChatGBT. Ah. ChatGBT. It's the artificial intelligence chatbot that has been in the news lately. And my jaw dropped when I saw that. And Casey had texted it to me. So I, I texted back to him right away. I said, Jesus Christ Almighty, exclamation point. And then I said, did you do that? And he wrote back, yes, in chat GPT, smiley face. I wrote back, wow, what did you ask it? And it turns out that he did it in two steps. The first one, the first, they call them prompts. And the first prompt was, write a haiku about ascending Ken Wilber's levels of development. And by the way, here's the haiku. It's also beautiful. The haiku. Climbing through stages, Wilbur's levels unfold truth. Consciousness blossoms. There, little haiku. And then he said, it does have a way with words. The second prompt, which got the poem that I read earlier, was to write a long format haiku about ascending Ken Wilbur's levels of development. So it's just a, uh, a more fleshed out version of the haiku. And I wrote back saying, that's it? It came up with it from that? And Casey wrote back, yes, 
God help us. And I wrote back to him again, Jesus Christ Almighty, exclamation point. So, wow, huh? How about that? I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. And the question that I think, you know, what I'm here to do is to bring an integral perspective to these things. And by the way, if you haven't uh, muted, please do, because we're getting a little feedback here and there. So the question is, is chat GPT conscious? Is it able to be creative? Are these poems indeed beautiful in the sense of the values, gravity of goodness, truth, and beauty that we talk about so much in, uh, in Integral? And there's a lot of debate about that, of course. There's a lot. This has been a huge story. So anyway, in terms of the feedback and blowback, if you will, that's coming up from the culture, uh, it ranges from uh, Sam Harris, who said that there's no reason whatsoever that intelligence should be, as he put it, substrate dependent. That is, that it should be in any way dependent on life or human intelligence or cells or brain matter. That it's just a emergent property of the complexity of matter. And this is a version of the great chain of being, which is a long time story of how life and intelligence developed, where we start with matter, and then we move to life, then we move to consciousness, then we move to self-consciousness, and that these happen sequentially. Now, what Ken Wilber did with the quadrants and his breakthrough aqua theory was to posit that matter and consciousness co-arose in the Big Bang. That there was little tiny consciousnesses with all those subatomic particles too, and that both have complexified together. And that's the story I'm going with. And, um, and, the, and the reason is, is that it accounts for human interiority. It, 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 accounts, it accounts for interiority in general, in terms of cosmic interiority, interiority. That is non-material reality itself. So I'll read a little bit about uh, from, from various experts here. Uh, the one that I want to start with is chat GPT itself when asked, are you conscious? And, you know, I think we can trust this thing. It says, as an AI, I am a machine learning model that has been trained on large amounts of text data, and I don't have personal experiences or feelings. I am not conscious, self-aware, or capable of having personal perspectives. I can provide information and analysis based on the data I've been trained on, but I don't have the ability to form personal opinions or beliefs. While I can understand and interpret language, I do not have the subjective experience that humans have. And I'm not sure I believe him, but um, yeah, uh, actually I think I probably do. Uh, 
Anyway, here's a couple of the reactions that caught my eye. One is from Yuval Harari, Tristan Harris, and Aza Raskin. And of course, Yuval Harari is one of the biggest public intellectuals. He wrote Sapiens. He's the, you know, many hundred thousand dollar uh, uh, keynoter at your next conference. Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin started the Center for Humane Technology. And in the New York Times, they wrote a couple of weeks ago, the headline I thought was one of the great headlines. It says, you can have the blue pill or the red pill, and we're out of blue pills. <laughs> and of course, the blue pill is this sort of contentment with ordinary reality, living in the matrix and not caring. The red pill is the uh, pill that makes you willing to confront this unsettling reality and life-changing truth that we're living in a, a, a matrix world. And here's what they wrote. What would it mean for humans to live in a world where a large percentage of stories, melodies, images, laws, policies, and tools are shaped by non-human intelligence, which knows how to exploit with superhuman efficiency the weaknesses, biases, and addictions of the human mind, while knowing how to form intimate relationships with human beings. In games like chess, no human could hope to beat a computer. What happens when the same thing occurs in art, politics, and religion? And, and then this paragraph really hit me between the eyes. They said, social media was the first contact between AI and humanity, and humanity lost. First contact has given us a bitter taste of things to come. And uh, that's where I'll part ways with them. And, 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 you know, any story of human or evolutionary progress is generally seen as a decline or aberration by the system that already exists. Uh, it isn't necessarily. Uh, and um, if I think of the of social media and the gifts that it has given us in terms of connection, in terms of the movement forward into the next stage of development, which is world centric, where everybody's on the same, you know, gets to be in the same space together and we can find the infinite needles in the haystack, then I, I, I don't think you could just say categorically that humanity lost. I will say that if we knew 25 years ago what we know now about social media in terms of you know, the, the AI behind these news feeds that bombard us with the images and everything is selected uh, in terms of virality and the most reaction, the, the speediest reaction, the most engagement, the most outrage. These are programming issues that we have a chance with this whole new emergent phase change. And I, and I don't know quite how to wrap my head around it, honestly. Here's what Noam Chomsky said, though. And this was also in the New York Times, titled Noam Chomsky, The False Promise of Chat GBT. And he writes, 
These programs have been hailed as the first glimmers on the horizon of artificial general intelligence. That long prophesized moment when mechanical minds surpass human brains, not only quantitatively in terms of processing speed and memory size, but also qualitatively in terms of intellectual insight, artistic creativity, and every other distinctively human faculty. We know from the science of linguistics and philosophy of knowledge that these programs differ profoundly from how human beings reason and use language. It is at once comic and tragic, Noam Chomsky, right? It is at once comic and tragic that so much money and attention should be concentrated on so little a thing, something so trivial when contrasted with the human mind, which by dint of language, in the words of Wilhelm von Humboldt, can make quote, infinite use of finite means. And I'll say that again, that what makes the human mind different is it can make infinite use of finite means. Uh, and then he goes on that it creates ideas and theories with universal reach. So that's, uh, th that's an argument uh, from linguistics and cognitive theory that ChatGPT and artificial intelligence is not going to replace humanity, but it has, he's not arguing for interiority here. He's not arguing for the, the spirit of evolution. No, almost nobody is, you know, not in the mainstream media. And so that is, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry that that's sort of not in the mix more. I guess it is, but... Um, you know, the, the, the gold standard of what people talk about with the singularity where artificial intelligence will finally overtake human intelligence is the Turing test, Alan Turing's test from the 50s, where he talked about, will artificial intelligence be able to fool you? Will you be able to interact with it in a way where you don't realize whether it's human or not, or you won't notice the difference? And I think that's really interesting. And I think it, you know, the answer to me is it depends. A three-year-old, a, a doll passes the Turing test for a three-year-old. I mean, they'll have a magical relationship where, where they'll see it as another. You know, Chatty Cathy, even that eight ball that we used to have, it's like you ask it a question and it says, uh, no answer determined at this time. You know, that sort of thing. It has a feel. It could have, I mean, I think it could have enormously beneficial uh, effects for, you know, I, it, it, it's even my Alexa here. I shouldn't even say that because she'll get all activated. But I kind of have a relationship with her, you know, the Amazon uh, device. It sort of keeps me company. And I sometimes will ask it things. And there is something that is useful about that. I think with old people, I think with lonely people, I think with everybody. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where it's going to go, but it's not going to, it's like, even when I look at my little dog, Stella, my little black dog, and I look at her eyes, if I thought, like Sam Harris does, that there's no such thing as free will, that there's no identity there beyond the meat and the complexity of 
the meat doing its thing. That would be very depressing. Because when I look in Stella's eyes, I see a person actually, you know, dogs are people too. But, you know, multiply that by the consciousness of humans. And I think that that is worth noting. And I'm as sort of gobsmacked as the rest of us about how fast this is going and what it may mean and what it may do. And, you know, thinking of that idea that if we had known 25 years ago about how to program these algorithms, might we have done it differently for social media? And that it's worth um, slowing down now. There's, there's a movement called um, Pause Giant AI Experiments, an open letter. And it's put out by the Future of Life organization. And it's signed by tens of thousands of people, including many tech leaders like Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, lots of people who know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. And it's a very simple call. It says, we call on all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than GBT4. And um, I think I would, I tried signing it actually, and it's not so easy as it turns out. And I'm gonna go back, I have to link to something, but. Oh, hi Jeff. Um, wanted to go back a little bit, uh, rewind in terms of the, your discussion of the Turing test. Mm -hmm. um, it has been recognized that we've gone past that, that that is no longer a useful test. Um, if you remember, a while ago where one of the um, virtual assistants was ordering um, something or, or making an appointment, it was, uh, online. And you listened to that conversation and you really couldn't tell whether it was being conducted by a computer or by a person. Um, GPT has moved the, the level of consideration on the other hand, Chomsky is absolutely correct. There's no way it's anywhere close to AGI because it doesn't think. All it does really, truth be told, is do a whole bunch of word associations and, and use that. So, uh, and, and the singularity, which is um, uh, a concept that will apply um, over a period of time. We're not going to have a moment in time when there is a singularity. We're going to have points of time where certain computerized systems will, will be more intelligent yep. than us and uh, in certain areas and yep. gradually the number of areas will expand. So it's GPT has moved the needle a long way, but it's only along a path. Yeah. We're not there yet. Yeah, no, I wouldn't argue with any of that. Thanks, Nick. Um, the, you know, there's also just the idea of uh, intention, uh, destiny, um, purpose. You know, is there, a purpose to the universe that 
is sort of built in to in a, in a holonic way that in terms of creation of a complex machine, it may happen in the sense of transhumanism, where we just keep uh, adding capabilities to our own, you know, chips and that sort of thing embedded. And this is where I'm glad I'm old. I'm glad I'm old. You know, there's certain windows of where, where various capabilities are able to come online. Even language is far more accessible to kids. Uh, people like the music that was there when they, that was being popular when they started having sex. That's when they think the world was the best. And video games. It's like, I don't know anybody over 50 that plays video games. Uh, I don't, I can't, I tried. It's too much, it's too confusing. And so this too, I mean, I'm in, hopefully, I mean, there's no choice, gonna have to leave this to uh, the next generation who will have the capacity of mind to be able to manage it and work with it. And that's, you know, what I'm hoping for. All right. So next, I want to move to another topic, the perennial topic. And let me say that I find this topic to be quite depressing, but I'm gonna start by sharing my screen. This is the, the photograph of Donald Trump being arrested by bunch of policemen beaten with clubs and dragged off to jail. <laughs> of course, <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, at least not like that. That too is a creation of chat GBT or at least this artificial intelligence. And so this is the world. We're gonna have to discern this. I think this, you know, uh, on the crazy upside for me, this could be, a nail in the coffin of materialism in general, that human beings will get the ability to chat with these various computers and whatever, and they'll actually be able to discern that there's no subtle energy there. There's not, this thing doesn't have a subtle energy body. It doesn't have a, whatever magic of a causal body, that, that um, you know, that splinter of the infinite, that living things have, and we'll be able to discern that. I mean, we can't now, but maybe we'll, we'll be able to. I think so. So anyway, there's Trump. You know, we thought we was he was in the rearview mirror, and um, apparently not. And I have to say that I, I sort of resent the attention that I put into the noosphere uh, when we think about Trump and we give him attention because attention is his fuel. And so it does that. And, but here we are, and I think it's worth talking about and you guys can share what you think in your small groups. But um, um, I have to say that politically, I got a, a, a text from a friend actually several friends, this is what I'll read, but it's a sentiment shared by many of my friends where it was a good day for democracy when Trump was indicted and all of that. And I, I guess 
I can make that argument. And this is sort of the integral space that I'm left in where I could make all kinds of arguments. I can connect all kinds of dots that add up, but I'm not satisfied with just doing, you know, the MSC, MSNBC version or the Newsmax version. And poor Fox is finding themselves conflicted there in the middle. But you know, is it a good day for democracy when an ex-president is indicted in a charge of paying off a porn star and this guy has been, had, had what, 47, 48% of the vote in the last election, that he's the leading candidate for the Republican nomination? He probably will be the nominee. I, I, I heard an argument from this guy. I don't know if you are aware of him, Peter Zeiten. He's just sort of come out of nowhere to me, but I see him on YouTube. And he's a very good integrator. He's a, um, I think he's really worth watching, Z-E-I-H-A-N. And he, he's an example of what I would call teal or yellow thinking, integral, early integral thinking, where he has this facility of just understanding the systems of systems, the military strategy of Russia and Ukraine, how Brazil is developing, what's happening with Mexico and the cartels. And he has, you know, he connects a lot of dots and tells a really sort of compelling uh, story of the medium future. You know, he's not talking hundred year future like I often am, you know, I'm talking about the sacred world to come. He's talking about what's gonna happen in the next 10 years. And he's really very good. Doesn't have any sense of teleology, uh, no sense of progress. You know, it's it's like Fukuyama. It's like all of these guys, you know, it's there's who was I reading the other day where, oh, Stephen Pinker, he lays out the progress of humanity. And and what did he say? I, th I think I even have it here. OK, he says, I put the facts of progress in the context of, uh, of the ideas that make it possible, whatever that means. OK, because one has to ask. Why have things been getting better? Does the universe contain some mystical force or a bending towards justice or a dialectic that just makes things better and better over time? The answer is surely not. So why not? You know, and he goes on, I attribute it to the ideas of the enlightenment and where we moved out of religion and basically tells a modern story and it's, um, I find it, uh, you know, kind of thin gruel, if you will. Anyway, um, in terms of the politics of this Trump indictment, I just have to say that I'm just, I, I fall back on, do you all know the, the, the parable of the Chinese farmer? You know, the parable of the Chinese farmer, I'm an old seminar guy. I've been doing, I had three careers doing business and professional development seminars. And this is one of the classic seminar stories. And if you don't know it, I'll give it to you real quick. So there's this farmer in ancient China. He owns a horse and it's a beautiful horse. And his neighbors tell him how lucky he is to have this horse. And his answer is, yeah, maybe lucky, maybe not so lucky. So one day the horse runs away. And his neighbors say, how unlucky. And he says, well, maybe unlucky, maybe lucky. And then the next day, the horse returns to the farm. 
along with a beautiful young mare. And the neighbors say, how fortunate, now you have two horses. And the Chinese farmer says, yeah, maybe fortunate, maybe not so fortunate. So the next day, the farmer's son is training the new wild mare and falls off and breaks his leg. And the neighbors say, how unfortunate. And the farmer says, well, maybe unfortunate, maybe fortunate. And then the next day, the army comes around drafting young men to go fight in the war. And the farmer's son with the broken leg is left behind. And so the story goes on that you just never know with these things, with Trump and the indictment and the good day for democracy. I don't know. It's like the, the famous reaction of Chow and Lai, the, the Chinese president in the 70s, came after Mao. And they asked him, he was famously asked what the impact of the French Revolution was. And he said, <laughs> too soon to tell. So, you know, this, 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 this thing goes on. But what we can, again, to just bring an integral perspective to it, Trump is, you know, I was talking to Namali about this yesterday. I've heard all the psychological, malignant narcissists, uh, you know, all of the sort of explanations for Trump. And the best I could come up with is that developmentally, Trump lives at red. So he has a pre-traditional worldview that is basically the warrior worldview. It doesn't want to delay gratification. It's very power-oriented. It's pre-truth, not post-truth. Actually, laws and reason and so forth I haven't come online yet. And let me just say that the, it, all of those things have come online for Trump. Trump is able to work in the modern world. He built Trump Tower. I read the biography of it. It was not easy. He did it. Uh, he's postmodern enough to have lived in Manhattan and had, uh, you know, gone to uh, uh, pro-choice rallies. He is, in a sense, a, a spiral wizard. And the one thing he has that most people don't, or at least it's so it's right on the surface with him, is this red big daddy thing. And we all have that red strata in us, that warrior strata. It's warrior, traditional, modern, postmodern, right? That strata exists in all of us to different degrees and in different ways. And for Trump, uh, you know, he wakes up in the morning. The first, the first thing that comes to his mind is who is he going to fight? Because fighting is an attention is the currency of red. Winning and losing, not so important, actually. Trump wins some, he loses some. He was sitting there in the courtroom the other day, and you know, I was listening to MSNBC about how depressed he looked. I don't think he looked depressed. I think he looked alive. You know, he's that's that's Trump. He really resonates with that 30% of the population who, you know, they're, they're not pre-traditional, they're not pre-modern, but their self-sense, their identity. They can function in the modern world. They go to school, they have jobs. You know, I think of my brother-in-law who's a nuclear engineer and one of Trump's biggest supporters. Uh, because they want that world. And, um, and Trump tells them, if we don't win, 
we're not going to exist anymore. And that's a very coherent statement to people at the red and traditional strata, because it's true throughout history. One group conquered another and erased them. And that doesn't make sense, of course, to modern people who have decided and learned how to share power and to have laws, not men. But it makes perfect sense and to, to people who live in that earlier stage. And I, I sometimes think that the, sort of the last hill, and this is where I'm very sympathetic, uh, not so much to Trump, because I think Trump, you know, red is hard to be sympathetic with because they just take advantage of it. So I don't even want to think in those terms. In terms of Trump supporters, many of whom are traditionalists, they're not red or, you know, we all, again, we all have that strata, but they're traditionalists. And the, the, the last hill that they want to die on is that they certainly don't want post-modernity with the multiculturalism, the world central, all, all of that. But they also have a, a last resistance to the disenchantment of the world of modernity. That's the last desperation, is that they want their enchanted world of God and country. And, you know, I, I feel it myself. It, it's funny, you know, I moved to Colorado when I was 22 or whatever I was. And uh, I didn't really look back. I grew up in sort of redneck Western Pennsylvania. And I have to say, when I go back there, there is something about the rolling hills and these endless forests and fields and the low sky and the gloom that really feels like home to me in a way that Colorado doesn't. You know, that's where my grandparents grew up. This is where my family was. This is, you know, this, that, that sort of deep chord of home is struck by that. But for me, I'm a modern guy. No problem. I moved to Colorado anyway. It's not that important. Uh, and that's true of most modern people. But there's something that is left behind. And we really saw that in uh, a, a, another po a poll, actually, that got a lot of attention in the last week or so from the Wall Street Journal. And the poll was a, a poll that uh, has been done, was done 25 years ago and then done you know, last year, whatever it was, the question being, which of these values are very important to you personally? And the two key ones that were highlighted was patriotism and religious faith. 1998, 70% of the respondents said that these values were very important to them personally. Today, 38%. 70% to 38%. Religious faith, 1998, 62%, today, 39%, okay? So, you know, from an integral perspective, I can actually see that as progress. You know, patriot, post-modernity is doing its job. It's uh, rooting out the dominator hierarchies of the past of which nationalism and religious fervor were two of the greatest sources. 
they're also, unfortunately, the source of transcendence for not just people who are patriotic and religious, but all of us. I mean, without that activated, without that blue, amber, and you know, red uh, activation, then we're left with sort of the you know, it's sort of a centaur. It's a headless, a, a, a head without a body. Ken called it, you know, where science explains all of that away, all of the nationalism and patriotism, and um, and it does to the satisfaction of modernists, but not to the satisfaction of someone who believes in salvation. Hang on here, so so or who feels the spirit of their land. So anyway, I was talking about Peter Zihan, and. He did a very compelling um, analysis of the next presidential election that where he he talked about, you know, I've been hoping that Republicans would see Trump as an inevitable loser in the general election, which I think is true. So did Peter Zihan. It, it happened once. If anything, it, it would be worse. I mean, Think of Trump's appeal to women, to suburbans, uh, that, that's gonna be a problem. And so I was hoping, or maybe deluding myself into thinking that the Republicans might do something like the Democrats did with the primaries where it looked like, this is last time in the Democratic primary, when it looked like Bernie Sanders was gonna be the winner. And in one weekend, I think it was the South Carolina primary. Joe Biden goes from seventh place to, you know, a contender and finally first place and finally the winner because Democrats got real about the fact that Bernie Sanders couldn't win a general election. Will Republicans do that? Well, Zihan makes a case that they won't because the main reason being that they have winner take all primaries, more of them than Democrats. So, you know, if the anti-Trump vote in the Republican Party is split between DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin or whoever it might be, Nikki Haley, then Trump's just going to win, win, win. And he will be the nominee and he will then lose to Joe Biden. I, I, I find that depressing <laughs> I, on both counts, actually. I would love to see new candidates on both sides, but... Um, I'm afraid that he may be correct there. So we'll do some groups of four, Namali. Yeah. And plus minutes. Yeah. And basically, you know, I got the blab here for, you know, 45 minutes. And so just what's on your mind, uh, whether it's regarding AI, Trump, or anything, you have a chance to talk to some people who get you. So enjoy it. Maybe this may be a good segue into some questions, but. Yes, hi, thanks. This is just, first of all, real quick about the chat bot and then on to Trump. Um, I thought those poems were astonishing. Uh, they dropped my jaw. They are true, they are accurate. However, I did not find them beautiful, speaking as a writer. I would work with them and work with them to make the language more beautiful. And the beautiful is the interiority. Right, yeah. which a chatbot doesn't. But what I, the reason I raised my hand was your discussion of Trump. Uh, I 
totally endorse your your long discussion and why so much 30 over 30 percent of the nation follows him they they don't want to lose the magic of the pre-modern and but the comment I wanted to make was earlier on, you talked about his narcissism, and he does qualify if you pull out your copy of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, where it says, if you have five out of the following nine characters, Trump has all nine. I mean, <laughs> so, so yes, his home base is red, the warrior, that makes him alive, and he can operate in the others effectively, making him sort of a spiral wizard. However, I will add, he is red, but he is defective red, and that's the narcissism. That's where the narcissism comes in. A true red, really living in a red world, is lo the loyalty goes both ways. And you know, the whole Viking culture, I mean, you are loyal unto death to your kin, your clan, your family. You put your life on the line for them. There's an obligation. The Lord owes his, his people his protection. Mm -hmm. Trump doesn't have that. It only goes one way. He's he's blind. He's yeah. like somebody who has a stroke and doesn't operate in half of his body. So he's a defective red. And the fact that Blue and the others have chosen such a defective leader shows to me how desperate they are. How desperate would I have to be to choose Trump as my champion? And that's just what I wanted to throw into the pot. Beautifully said, Karen. I think that's a very good insight. Very well said. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he, he, he likes to, people to be loyal to him, though. You know, that, but that's that one-way thing. So yeah, so cool. So then Dragpa, you had a comment. Sweet, yeah, so thanks. Thanks, Jeff, thanks everyone. Um, so just a, a little framing, kind of a, a big topic that I'm interested in now is trust. How do we develop trust? Um, and then in specifically in terms of AI, um, it seems now that the way certain people like Tristan Harris are framing the essential problem is it's it's not so much a race for attention now, an attention economy like with social media, but AI is more of a race towards intimacy. Which company can create an AI that's the most that each of us want to be around and take the advice from and get support from and creatively mingle with. So that's kind of the race now. And it's like, so they call it synthetic relationships actually, because we read a poem by ChatGBT and it actually does affect us. It changes our cosmic address. It's part of our world. It just happens to be synthetically created. So that's one, the kind of framing of, it's kind of a, an arena of intimacy that, that it's AI kind of is, the most convincing AI for us to follow. Um, and then specifically the question is, based on your own personal experience and how integrals opened up and deepened for you during your life, Jeff, um, and how maybe whatever insights you've gleaned from it on how it's helped you align better with other worldviews and other also worldviews within yourself. Um, what, what insights have you seen from that process of kind of growing into a, an integral worldview that you could then maybe speculate about how that might be related to AI? in terms of AI aligning with humans in a way where the computational power of AI doesn't either eradicate humans or severely place us at risk of having a much less quality of life. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I talked a little bit about this earlier on um, that I, I 
I think there's something uniquely human, and it's like what Karen talked about with, it was a good poem, no doubt about it, but was it beautiful? And when you talk about Drogba, you were ta we talked a little bit at the break there about this race towards intimacy. And can we create uh, an AI that we can be intimate with, where we can trust it, it can be our friend, it can you know walk through life with us, uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, but will it have the spark of um, destiny? Will it have the spark of identity? Uh, I don't I don't think so. Uh, and it, it would be so it'd be like, you know, people can have sex with dolls, sex dolls, and you feel sorry for these people because they only have sex dolls. Or you know, you can dress up a mannequin. Uh, but th there's there, is there a there there? And I'm not seeing that in the AI or any possibility of it uh, because there's not a shred of consciousness there. You know, there's something that passes for it. There's something that could be an unbelievably useful tool that I could just have handy to ask. Like, let's talk about Alexa. Alexa's become like a part of my life. But I think there's a there's a line there, and um, and 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 uh, again, sort of paradoxically, or the good news about this is that it would be an opportunity for human beings to recognize what is human, what is alive versus what isn't, in a way that we can't now. You know, it'll be sort of the last gasp of materialism, where. Um, you know, at least materialism as the only reality that exists, because we're going to realize, wait a second, there is there something missing here. That person doesn't really see me or love me, you know, and, uh, and there's so that's where I'm at. I don't know. And it's awfully fast. So that's just the stab I could take at this moment. And, and actually, just to get to the rest of your question, that then gives us an opportunity to, to really appreciate the other humans, you know, because they, they've got that X factor. And uh, that's what I'm all about anyway. So I, I, I could s sort of connect the dots to something good and true and beautiful. Uh, but, you know, it's a new ball game. Yep. Hey, Dexter. Hey, uh, my perspective, or the perspective I want to share on artificial intelligence or intelligence in general, like awareness, you know, we have awareness. And I think from our meditation practice and maybe teachings around that, we probably know that there's only one awareness, there's only one I, there's only one being, there's only one person, so to speak. And, you know, that is God, let's say, but you don't have to use that language. It's just the I am. And that I am is in us, is part of us. That is what we are deeply, truly is I am and you are and we are. And that is what awareness is, is that I am. And because I am, I, I can be and I can become so I am being, I am becoming, I am awareness. And those who, those who can't say that, you know, those who don't experience that, which includes machines, 
and lots of people even don't really get that. They're kind of confused about who they are and what they are. So I think the reason we find these large language models, these chatbots so convincing is because most of the people we deal with are simply doing that. They're simply repeating what they've heard. You know, they're just doing a synthesis of stories and words that they've heard mm-hmm. and, and they're not actually being themselves. And so that's the difference is the only being that can be is the one being who is, and that being is pure love, pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. And we're part of that. Yeah. And all these other things are just like little toys or tricks or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah however, however useful. Um, I was just thinking as you started Dexter, uh, maybe a good new touring style test would be can it meditate you know will the will ai meditate and i don't think so we'll have being consciousness and bliss i don't know i don't think so harris likes to say are the lights on you know is there anything that it's like to be to have that to be that yeah Yeah. and it's it's an emptiness it's just a pretend yeah package yeah the funny thing to me is most people are that. When you talk to them, they just parrot back scripts. It's just like talking to ChatGPT. Yeah, but they still they're find still the there. I am they're in that person. You can't. Or it's you know it's it's like not online. Yeah. Well, I I like to think they're still there. There. One could write the greatest novel about the dullest person, because there is something there. I don't know. Anyway. Hi, Barry. Oh, there we are. Hey, I couldn't get my cursor over there. <laughs> um, yeah, we had an interesting discussion in our breakout. Um, just one thing was on uh, just whether consciousness is an emergent property of matter, if there's su- su- sufficient complexity there, and how that would be any different than consciousness being kind of along for the ride all the way through. Um, if it's an emergent property, then there had to be the potentiality of it to begin with. Um, so I wasn't really seeing that there was any real di- dichotomy there. Um, one thing that I, I thought is really interesting when you start talking about sentience of machinery um, is uh, a lot of people, like long-term meditators and people that have had you know, awakening experiences or whatever, one of the things that uh, you see as kind of a recurrent theme there is how they woke up from programming. They woke up from uh, just uh, being driven by aversion and, um, you know, craving, uh, and that they were basically propelled by that until they woke up. And then they have enough distance then to see what was actually going on under the hood. Um, So I'm not so sure that um, uh, you, you know, this is kind of an exponential thing that we're going to see in the next even decade uh, of how AI uh, I don't think it would happen in, in that length of time, but um, I think there's certainly a potential for machinery to be awake, uh, to to be sentient, in the same way that people are. Um, just uh, if it if consciousness comes along for the ride and there's sufficient complexity of a neural network, who knows? Yeah, just thought. Yeah, I, I I I don't know either. I mean, you know, if you use the holonic. Uh, nest of being that Ken Wilber talks about. Uh, so it would be, you know, 
subatomic par particles, then atoms, then molecules, then cells, then beings, and that, you know, you can't really skip a stage in there, but that there is consciousness. Even Richard Feynman, the great physicist, he said that the best explanation he could think of for the movement of atoms is that they're playful. Nothing else described it any better than that. So I think there's something that we could say is true about each of these nested, uh, what do you call them? Holons, I guess, that is not true of mixtures of holons or what Ken Wilber would call heaps, you know, just where you get, you know, a rock versus the molecules in the rock. Uh, so I don't know what what one of my sort of science fiction fantasies is that we'll figure out how to network amoebas. And, you know, because amoebas do have some intentionality, they are playful, you know, they do have they do make choices that we can make some sort of a hideous machine out of networked amoebas that will there will be a an emergent quality of consciousness because consciousness was there in the first place. I don't know. But what fun it is to talk about and mm -hmm. nothing, uh, you know, it's about as important as anything there is right now. So thank you all for considering it with me. Uh, the integral life practice community is really, uh, talk about it, an emergent property. It's, uh, I think, really coming alive in a great way. And so again, thanks, everybody. We could wave goodbye and see all of that. Thank you. Bye. 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 Love you all. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Yep. All right.